Welcome to the Star Singer Podcast. I'm Tiffany, and I'm here to help you to transform your singing into standing ovation-worthy performances and auditions. You can be cast in your dream role, and you can give amazing performances and feel confident about how you sound. So let's do this. Hello, before we get started, I'm so excited to invite you to my free class called Get Cast Fast, Four Steps to Earning Your Dream Music Theater Role. We're going to go through the three biggest mistakes that singers and performing auditioners make, and we're going to go through the dream role framework so that you can finally earn that dream role that you deserve. I'm so excited to invite you, and you can go to starsinger.co slash p slash register to register and I'll leave that link in the description or you can DM me on Instagram at starsingerco. Now that you've registered, let's start this episode. All right, I am so excited to be here with Heather Nelson and Dr. Heather Nelson is a vocologist from Springfield, Missouri. She teaches privately, specializing in working with singers who have injury or are at greater risk for injury. She loves working with singers of all skill levels, but especially loves helping professional voice users develop and refine technique that will help them perform at their best level. When not teaching or writing, she can be found reading, cooking, and attending to every wish and whim of Dewey the dog and Sis the cat. (laughs) I'm so excited that you're on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, and I'm excited to be here too. This is really fun for me to be able to talk about you know things that I love um, and hopefully uh, other people will learn and love them too. Um, I grew up in Southwest Missouri in a teeny tiny small town and there's not even any stoplights in my town. <laughs> and so um, our, our school had a very small music program. I didn't even have a voice teacher in my town. Um, and so my first voice lesson was uh, as a freshman in college. I did take piano lessons, but I started when I was in sixth grade. So I was a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, and so I uh, went to college for, for voice after, you know, having choir in high school and, and stuff and, and uh, realized very quickly that, um, you know, being a big fish in a small pond <laughs> was very, very difficult to, to make that transition into college life. But I had a great, uh, su- wonderful, supportive voice teacher, and um, he really... Uh, took my voice and in four years just kind of transformed it and I was just fascinated by it. I really expected to be um, uh, in the music business world. My undergrad degree is in music business and so I did internships at um, uh, at a record uh, studio in Memphis and um, after graduation I worked uh, as kind of a business manager of a group that I sang with and uh, did that for a couple years and then got the urge to go back to school, went back for a master's degree, and then a couple years later got another master's degree, and then a couple years later went on to the PhD. Uh, I just, I love learning about the voice, and the more I learn about the voice, the more I realize that there's still so much to learn. It is a deep, deep well, and it's really, really exciting to continue to learn about all of the, the, the workings of the voice and how the brain influences how we sing. I, myself, uh, being a singer, um, 
I will, I, I sing in uh, professional choirs now and uh, have done that for several years. Um, I have always kind of considered myself um, uh, a little bit of a, I don't know, a less than singer. You know, I, I, I suffer from the comparison syndrome. And so I have fought with the whole insecurity of, of singing and, and uh, you know, just feeling confident in my own voice. And so that helps me to relate to people very well, I think, because I, I have, have fought for my, you know, I have fought for my voice, you know, and to feel confident in it. And um, I feel that that helps me really relate to my clients that um, also have insecurities or difficulties with their own voice, because in a lot of respects, I've been there. And um, uh, I, I still fight with that, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopefully getting better and better and better at, at being more accepting of myself and helping others to do that too. Yeah. I feel that way as a piano player, like I'm definitely proficient, but it's like I have friends who when I was a vocal performance major, like they're piano performance and they can do like crazy. So I know like people are like, what are you talking about? You're a great piano player. And I'm sure you get that too. Like, what are you talking oh, yeah. about? You're a great singer. But we all judge ourselves, people. <laughs> we, we all need to be a little bit kinder. We're all working on it. <laughs> it's hard work you know if you really wanted to do well it's it's hard work you know um it i am not one where it has come naturally you know i have had to work for it yeah and that's also reassuring because a lot of people think that singing is either something you're born with or you're not and like i can't do it i'll never be a great singer like i don't understand why singing is so definitive in our culture that way sometimes so it's so good to know. Yes, I agree. And I, I am adamant that everyone is a singer. And it is one of the most, most human activities that we can do, you know, just to sing. And um, I encourage people all the time to, you know, just sing. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. Your voice is, is unique and wonderfully made. And, and we, as, as a community, as a culture, we need to hear everybody's voice. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the snowy morning. I'm like, oh, I was touched. <laughs> um, so what exactly is a vocologist for our, for our listeners? Yeah, so in my PhD, um, I studied vocal pedagogy and voice science. So I was in the music department, um, in the music education department specifically, but a large part of my coursework was in the speech therapy department, um, speech and language, and, and neurology departments. And so I studied the inner workings of the voice, the anatomy and physiology, and the neuroanatomy and physiology of singing. And so... Um, you know, I did have to do like a recital as a part of my doctorate and everything too. Um, but I did a year-long practicum with a laryngologist at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So uh, working as a part of the voice team with patients who had come in with, with vocal troubles. And then um, uh, most of my clients when I was teaching privately uh, at that time were referrals from from the doctor's office and so um, a vocologist is someone who is you know has some sort of a, a background in the voice some vocologists are speech language uh, pathologists some are like me and are, are voice teachers primarily but we have done that extra training to really understand um, and learn about the the physical and neuro aspects of the voice 
So it's like a voice scientist. Yeah, in a lot of respects, I, I tell people one of the ways to describe it is if you were to stick like a, an, a speech language pathologist and a voice teacher in a blender, <laughs> out pops me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. Well, I know a lot of your specific research is based on the area of acoustics and phonation. Could you Correct. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, because all of, all of singing initiates in the brain. You know, everything we do initiates in the brain, but singing um, as well. And we are influenced a lot by what we hear. Uh, the brain has two main um, ways of, of uh, kind of operating. Motor, which is here, do this. And sensory, which is, okay, what's happening? Um, and the acoustics part of it is the is sensory it's okay what's happening so the brain is trying to figure out what's um you know how big the room is um uh what the reverberation rate of the room is and all of this stuff and then the brain can make adjustments based on the sensory information that it's taking in and so um when we are are listening to things in the room where we are uh monitoring or, or managing things like how loud we're singing. That's kind of where my specific uh, er area of interest lies. Uh, we, we sometimes work with tempo. If anyone has ever um, sung in a stadium, <laughs> sometimes you'll realize that you'll start singing slower and slower and slower. <laughs> you know, um, uh, we also get uh, information on, um, on tension or just how things are feeling um, that can sometimes be influenced by what we hear because if we uh, start to sing louder based on the auditory feedback that we're getting, we can increase our tension um, unknowingly or sometimes on purpose trying to, to combat the acoustics that are in the room. That seemed like kind of a circuitous answer. I don't know if it made sense or not. <laughs> Definitely, and it's a lot to take in you know, you think about singing inside of a room and like, I've never thought about my brain giving me, I mean, obviously our brain gives us feedback on evaluating our voice and saying like, is that a good feeling or not? Or mm -hmm. can I do better? How am I doing? How's the resonance? How's the vibrato? How's the whatever? Mm -hmm. But I've never really thought about my brain, like giving me feedback about how loud I was singing in a particular room. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just wacky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. And that's, that's one reason why I love brains so much because there's just, it, there, we do things and sometimes we, sometimes we have control and sometimes we don't. Um, specifically when we're speaking about uh, vocal amplitude, there are two areas of the brain that control vocal amplitude. One of them is, um, is frontal cortex where we we plan okay i see a forte in the score so i'm going to sing a forte here um so amplitude is volume yes okay um uh people would call it loudness you know if you know how basically how loud how loud you are um we can we can plan you know uh based on dynamics or however we want we're you know we are going to sing this loud or not uh, but we also have uh, amplitude controls in the brainstem, which are reflexive. And um, things, there's this wonderful and frustrating thing called the Lombard effect, um, L-O-M-B-A-R-D, if you want to look it up, it's pretty cool, uh, where it basically says in the presence of ambient noise, like say a fan in the room or crowd noise, if you've ever walked into a party and there's a bunch of people and you walk out in the hallway and realize you've been yelling for like an hour, <laughs> Um, 
that is the Lombard effect, where in the presence of some sort of ambient noise, uh, the voice uh, amplitude is raised, and we usually don't realize that we're doing it. And that's a brainstem reaction. Brainstem is all reflex. You know, that's where your heart rate, your respiration, and all of that stuff is. And so we have that to compete with, too. If you're in a room trying to sing, and there's people talking, your brain may say, hey, I want to be heard. <laughs> and so it raises the amplitude of your voice, and you really didn't even realize that you did it. That's actually really interesting because I know a lot of people may sing in coffee shop or bar mm -hmm. environments or something like that, and it's definitely not a listening room. A lot of people don't necessarily go to a bar and be like, okay, well, we're going to listen to music. Right. So like they might be just talking with someone and being like, oh, there's actually just live music here. Like that's a surprise. So they didn't go with the intention to listen. So like as a performer, how will mm -hmm. that affect your performance and your voice? You know, if you feel like you need to be heard, obviously mm -hmm. you're going to alter your technique a little bit and it might not be in the best interest of your vocal health. Correct. And in that kind of environment specifically, um, there's, there's a little bit of research out there. It's not great and it's not complete. Um, like if you are using a, a floor monitor or even an in-ear monitor, if the brain um, interprets that digitally produced sound, even though it's your voice, um, it's, it's, the research isn't quite clear, at least the research that I've seen so far, isn't clear that the brain interprets that in the same way that it interprets your actual like airborne feedback. Um, the digital stuff, there's, there's upper, upper partials that are just not there in the digital reproduction of your, of your voice that is there when you can get the airborne feedback, if that makes sense. <laughs> so um, digital, you know, like microphones and speakers just can't handle that range of, of, of overtones. Yeah, well, I've never been a fan of sound setup anyway, but it is a necessary evil in True. things like that. And but I find that a lot of sound engineers in that environment will turn everything up instead yes. of turning other people down. And yes. it'll just keep getting louder mm -hmm. and it just doesn't help anyone. And it really is frustrating for me or maybe others who are, you know, more into the choral thing or the acapella mm -hmm. thing or the live stage thing, you know, in a smaller setting where we are the controllers of our voice. Mm -hmm. Well, and how does amplification, so now you're in a room and now you've got amplification and now you've got someone messing with your amplification and you've got other levels. How is that? I mean, yeah, yeah, Sorry, it's, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it is a lot to take in, and um, you know, and in choirs too. Well, we we can get to that in a minute, I think. But um, yeah, you you just have to. I think it's it makes more sense um, very often to you know be able to just hear yourself. You know, the sound that's coming from your own mouth. You're gonna get the best feedback. Um, uh, from from that if you can just hear the sound that is coming out of your mouth rather than relying on um, other gimmicks you know or electronics or whatever to do that for you obviously there are exceptions to that if you if there's just no way that you can hear you know we have to but then you get into you know what are you also doing to your ears <laughs> you know how much sound are you putting into your ears um, 
that's a whole other topic for another day. Um, but we want to also preserve our, our hearing health as well. So electronic amplification, just it has some great qualities. It also has some really huge caveats that we have to um, acknowledge and deal with. So would you say that if you're not comfortable singing in a room by yourself, you shouldn't be singing with amplification or other variables? <laughs> um, amplification makes us sound louder. It hardly ever makes us sound better. And so if you are not comfortable singing in a room, um, no, I, I would say really work to get that first because um, you, you do want to be able to produce a good quality resonant sound that just comes from your body uh, and not rely on someone else to, to, to try to change your quality or whatever. Because, I mean, if we're getting real philosophical about that, if we have to change your sound with amplification or with effects or whatever, we're not hearing you. We're hearing um, a caricature and... I, I personally want to hear you, uh, you know, even with all of, you know, if there's faults or, you know, fuzz or, you know, breathiness or whatever, I don't care. I, I want, I want to hear you and I don't want to be fooled by electronic wizardry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know like in music theater or, I mean, opera doesn't have amplification, but like in music theater, you may have like a small mic or a head mic or you may have like hanging mics like that feels a little bit more natural because it's yes. just it's coming from you but it's just kind of amplifying it a little bit so that the back of the room can be heard yeah um, that's super we have a lot of different listeners and yeah many different stages of their singing uh -huh. so I'm trying to like get to everybody here if they might have mm -hmm. questions and trying to predict that so I know uh, I know a lot of when I'm working with singers especially beginning singers and they've maybe never you know had a voice lesson before I really want them to get to like open up mm -hmm. and opening up to a lot of people in my experience has been like asking them to sing a little bit louder mm -hmm. only because it's a way that they might be able to relate to the feeling of effort and physicality in order to produce the sound. Mm -hmm. So why does the brain maybe resist that or in what situation, to what extent can we not necessarily use that as an excuse, but like use mm -hmm. that knowledge to understand and be more patient with ourselves, but then also release the voice as it was meant to come out in the future? Sure. Um, I think that's a really big question, actually, um, and a really, really good one. Uh, first off, I think there's also there's the psychological aspect of it. You know, singing for another person, particularly for the first time, is a scary proposition. And I just want to give really, really a, a whole lot of encouragement to people who are, you know, still early in that process or, um, uh or considering getting into voice lessons that, uh, yes, it's really hard, but it's really worth it, in my opinion, <laughs> to, to do that. Because uh, you are is basically singing for people and then, you know, 
uh, in, in a respect being judged, you know, you're having someone who is an expert give feedback on that. And that is totally scary. But um, most of us that do that for a living are pretty kind people, <laughs> you know, so, so just be brave. Um, well, it's also interesting because like if they're an expert, like mm -hmm. you, you have to consider that they've probably heard some really great, great singers uh -huh. and some singers that are, you know, at the very beginning stages. Oh, yes. So you're probably going to fall somewhere in between there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's safe. <laughs> yeah. And in my work, you know, when I've got somebody that comes in, especially, you know, if they've got some sort of a diagnosis, they've got a lump or a bump or something on their vocal folds, you know, and their voice just does not sound right to them anymore. They can have a little bit of an identity crisis, like, you know, what is going on? And so I, I tell people all the time there, you know, I have heard a lot of not good singing, <laughs> you know, just because that, that is what happens sometimes. And there's nothing that will come out of your mouth that will frighten me. It'll be fine. Yeah. But. And it's just like if your guitar string is broke, you're not going to expect your guitar to sound good until mm -hmm. you, I mean, that's a little bit of an, of an insane analogy because it's yeah. not like our voice <laughs> is like completely broke. Uh -huh. But if it's even like worn out, the string is worn out, it's not going to resonate as well. And then when you replace the string, you know, then it will sound better. But it's just like, we don't judge instruments when they need a little bit of love or repair or right. why are we judging ourselves? Yeah. And so you're just being encouraging and, and, you know, I, I, I really, really value the bravery that it takes for someone to, to sing for another person. It, it, especially one-on-one -on -one when you're like six feet from each other, <laughs> that, you know, it could be very intimidating, but, you know, people do it and it's, it's just, it's wonderful to see that process happening. Um, but getting onto the other, the other side of it, we do have to, to acknowledge that we hear our own voices differently than, than what other people hear them because we have the benefit uh, of bone conduction. And um, that bone conduction makes our voices sound different inside of our heads than it does out in, in, in the world. And I think we all know that because we hear our, our speaking voices recorded like on our, our, um, our, our voicemail greetings or whatever. And it's like, oh my gosh, I do not sound like that, do I? <laughs> but, you know, so we know that um, our voices sound different outside of our own heads. And... Um, especially if you are singing in the extremes of your range, like for high sopranos, it really can sound like you've got a chorus of mice in your head, <laughs> you know, that that's almost squealy sound, like there's no way this can sound good, but outside it really does. And so being able to trust the expert, trusting other people in the room um, that are hearing it, uh, recording yourself so that you can hear it later, um, can really be valuable and just just knowing that what you are hearing in your own head is different than what is out there can kind of help to to not um not hold back a little bit i hope if that makes sense let me say that in a different way um if you understand that what you hear inside of your head is different from what you hear out in the world it it kind of makes makes it a little easier, I think, to be able to trust someone else's judgment or trust the recordings that you make and then relate what you are hearing and what you are feeling to the feedback that you're getting. And then you make the connection. 
Yeah, definitely finding someone that you can trust and allowing yourself to trust someone is is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of singers are a little reluctant or a little hesitant to do that, or maybe they don't have a voice teacher. Well, then the, the recording is great because mm-hmm. you can trust yourself and then you get to listen back to yourself and like mm-hmm. have an opinion about it if you want, or you could just take it in. So I love the idea of recording oneself. And so many people are afraid to do it because <laughs> they're like, well, what if it sounds bad? Well, what if it sounds good? Yeah. And what if it does? I mean, you, you keep working on it. I, I think it's a great exercise to record yourself, even if you're not going back to, to listen for feedback, but, to, you know, to, just to save it, archive it, and then go back six months later or, or a year later and, and note your progress. Um, that can be wonderfully motivating, you know, and just encouraging and, and gratifying to be able to hear your own progress over time. Yeah, that's a great idea, especially because like people will come in from week to week and sometimes there's not a lot of change, Mm -hmm. but then there's one week where just something, everything comes together and you can hear this big change and you're like, whoa, like (laughs) you've been eating your Wheaties, you know, like it sounds amazing and they're like really and because if you live with yourself every day and you're you're practicing I mean that's evolving and your hearing and your feeling is evolving too so it's a great idea for inspiration and feeling like you're on track Mm-hmm. to record your progress. I mean, if you were trying to lose weight, what would you do? You would go to the scale and you would weigh yourself and then you'd be able to see if you actually achieved your goals, which would motivate you to keep going or saying, well, this isn't working. I need to do something different. So in that way, we can kind of measure our vocal progress and that will help people to feel better about the process and more encouraged because so much of it is a mind game. Yes, yes. So what are some ways that the brain plays tricks on us in both good or bad ways? Speaking of the mind game. Uh, so how does the brain trick us? Um, you know, the brain is, um, is a great machine and it is really awesome at, you know, helping us to kind of navigate the world. But uh, we all know that it's not a perfect um, judge of everything that's going on as well. And so, um, like uh, I, I mentioned earlier, if you're singing in the stadium, very often um, you will find yourself slowing down because the reverb rate in a large room like that, it takes a very long time for the, the feedback to get back to your ears. And so the brain kind of will start to slow you down because it just, it likes that feedback. And if it doesn't know what's going on, it will kind of like pump the brakes. <laughs> and so uh, you could actually start slowing down your singing um, without intending to. Um, uh, and that's just an, a, a matter of being in the room and or being in a large, large space with the reverb and um, the, the brain's just like, you know, doesn't quite figure out what's going on. Um, so likewise, reverb, reverb is like, I, I'll think of it as like, maybe you can scientifically explain mm-hmm. it a little bit. I think of it as like being in a well, like how far down the well are you and how long does it take to echo back to me 
but could you explain that like more scientifically? <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually a really, really great explanation. It is the, the amount of time that it takes for the sound to get to like a hard surface and then back to the listener. Um, and the listener doesn't necessarily have to be the, the, the person on the stage. It could also be the person in the audience. When um, auditoriums are being designed, they're mostly concerned about the reverberation rate for the people that are in the seats. Um, and it can be affected by the, um, uh, the number of people in a room. People are sound suckers. And so if you've got a, a, a large room full of people versus an empty auditorium, the reverb rate is going to be different. That's why rehearsing in, a, in an auditorium that's empty can sometimes feel very very different than when you're like doing your recital and all of a sudden there's people here reverb is different um, it can be affected by whether you have angled walls or not um, even the uh, material of the walls wood and concrete reverb just a little bit differently um, uh, just because they're you know wood is a little softer than concrete and so it reflects the sound a little differently um, and so the brain takes information, um, auditory information, and um, translates what it's hearing in about 250, uh, 250 milliseconds of time, so about um, a quarter of a second. And so if reverb rate is longer than that, then it's trying to integrate sound information before sound information gets back. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, it's happening very, very quickly and constantly, you know, it's constantly taking all this information and trying to, you know, determine what is going on in the environment and, um, and what is, uh, what it needs to do in response to that. Wow. And so, um, and then you have to add in, you know, all of the things like adrenaline and, and emotional things that are going on too. It has a lot to do, <laughs> to, you know, in, in a short amount of time to kind of figure out, okay, am I safe? There's one question. Um, am I, you know, doing a good job? Am I adequately filling the room and all of that stuff? And it's um, very often uh, if you have been practicing in a small room, let's say a practice room or I practice in my living room and then I try to translate what I have been learning in a small room into a large auditorium, things can just go crazy. You know, my technique can go straight out the window if I rely too much on what I'm hearing. So now we've got, let's say that we're singing in a, a baseball game or a football game mm -hmm. and there's maybe a stadium, but maybe there's like a field, like let's say it's like a high school football game or a community football game or something. And there's a microphone because it has to project over the loudspeaker. Mm -hmm. So now we've got a large space that's like primed for reverb. We've got amplification. We've got bodies that change the reverb. Uh, we have all of these things going mm -hmm. on. Like it's a lot of variables. Oh, yes. And like usually like a good solution for that is like just keep the rhythm going like just mm -hmm. don't listen to yourself just keep the rhythm going just feel yeah. it just keep <laughs> going but if you don't know that you're gonna judge yourself so intensely whereas if you know that there are all of these variables that can be scary but it can also just be a lot of information about this is gonna happen what do I do to overcome this what can I predict will happen what do I anticipate I know this is coming so I can relax instead of being in the moment and being like, oh, this is so different. Like, why do I, why do I suck? You know, and it's not you. It's, 
Exactly. Everything else. Yeah. And that's where knowing those two different parts of the brain that are controlling things like that, you know, because if you are just um, kind of a victim of the environment, you know, then we're making decisions basically at the brainstem level and it's reflex and we have no control and it just, it can, you know, it can feel horrible. But if we, like you said, if we know this is going to happen, if we can predict this is going to happen, then we can kind of override that reflex and go up towards the frontal cortex part of the brain and decide this is what I'm going to do. And, um, and we, we can stick with our technique a little bit better. So let's say that I am going to create a safe singing space for me <laughs> to practice in. Obviously, when you go out into the world, you're going to have different environments mm -hmm. as you sing in different spaces. But one of the first things might be just getting really comfortable with your voice, mm -hmm. what it sounds like, how it feels. So let's say I'm going to create a, what if we were creating a room that would be like one of the best places acoustically to feel safe to like mm -hmm. release the voice and let that come out. Like, what would that look like? What size would it be? What material would it be? What would be in the room with us? What would that look like? <laughs> if I were designing my perfect practice room, it would probably actually be a large auditorium, um, which is not practical at all. But, um, you know, we, we sing in large rooms most, you know, when we're performing, it's mostly going to be in large rooms. And so if I were going to, you know, want to design a perfect practice space, I would want to sing or to rehearse in a, in a space that's most similar to where I, I mostly perform. So that's not practical at all, eh, unfortunately. There have been some, uh, some attempts at creating practice rooms that digitally reproduce reverb. Um, they're really expensive. Um, spoiler alert, they don't really work. <laughs> Um, my entire dissertation was, was, you know, kind of experimenting with those rooms and putting singers in them and, um, they, they just don't work the way that we would want them to yet. Interesting. Do you happen to know how the whisper room works? Uh, the, the whisper room is, um, um, there's, there's one, there's a whisper gallery in like, uh, Union Station in St. Louis and, um, like you it's essentially just playing with sound waves because sound waves can move through um, solid surfaces too. They're not just through the air. And so you can actually uh, hear things better sometimes underwater. If you've ever been in a pool and had somebody yell at you, <laughs> you know, it can sound, you because know, sound waves uh, move through a solid surface um, a little bit better or a, a semi-solid surface a little bit better than, um, than they do in, in the air. That's why bone conduction works so well for us <laughs> because it's, that's literally a solid surface inside your own head. Um, and so those sound waves just move along that solid surface and can move faster and, with, uh, and they don't lose amplitude over, over the distance as quickly as they do through the air. It's all starting to make sense now. Yeah. So going back to that uh, practice room, mm -hmm. um, a more practical practice room. Yeah. What might that look like? I'm getting ready to do a, a redesign of my own studio space, actually, and I have carpet in there now, but I'm going to take it out and uh, put it in. I haven't decided if I'm going to put wood floors or, or what in, but I want a hard floor and I'm going to put down a rug um, because I can roll the rug up and literally change the, the reverb in the room. It can, you know, the, the more hard surface there is in a space, the more ring you're going to have in a room. I mean, it's going to be like less, 
probably half a second or less. It's still going to be a very, very short reverb time, but just having that little extra ring can sometimes make your voice feel a little more full. And, um, and so singing, that's why we love singing in the shower. Hard space is everywhere <laughs> and it just bounces all over the place and we, we sound awesome. But having um, more hard surfaces, so, you know, less pillows, you know, all of that stuff, um, just things for the sound to bounce off of um, can help a room have a little bit more reverb to it and make us feel a little, a little more um, like our voice is bigger. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how would you suggest, suggest that singers, like, use all of this information in order to continue to improve their singing or get ideas for better ways to practice, um, yeah. to feel safer, to release the voice more, to let their true voice come out. Mm -hmm. So I, I think uh, the, the biggest takeaway that I've had in my research is that, um, you know, ears are great, but they should not be really our primary source of feedback for our own singing voice. Uh, we really need to go more with just of how it feels at the laryngeal level. You know, does it feel relaxed? Does it feel like we have good airflow, good support? Because regardless of where we sing, that remains constant. If we have good relaxation and good, um, good breath support, that doesn't change based on what we're hearing if we don't allow it to. But our, our ears can, can give us different feedback. You know, even if I walk from my living room to my kitchen to my studio, I have different acoustical situations in each of those rooms um, that may affect how I'm singing if I if I am not paying attention to how it, it feels. And so that would be my first and biggest, um, biggest um, takeaway, I guess, is that if you, if you feel like your technique is constant wherever you're singing, you can walk into any room and you will still have good technique. How do you know when it feels good? And that's like a huge question because you just explained like, 10 different categories of potential feeling and awareness. Yeah. <laughs> and so what would you like suggest is a good step to begin to learn this? You know, singing is hard work. You put in effort, but it should not feel effortful. And so if you are feeling like you are working really hard um, in, in your throat, then probably something is not, not right. Um, the hard work is all above your eyeballs. That's where the hard work is. And so um, when I am kind of firing on all cylinders for my own voice, I, I feel like my throat is really open and, and like the air is just like unimpeded coming from, and I feel like I'm singing with my whole body. You know, I'm, my, yeah. my whole respiratory system is involved. So if you start to feel tight in your neck or extremities, like outside of the neck or like feel mm -hmm. lots of pressure, you're doing it wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then like, what would the next step be? So then of course, mm -hmm. the question that they're asking is, okay. And again, this isn't what we're going into, but then, sure. but like, what is right and how do we know it's right? What's a step that we can take to begin to experience that? Mm -hmm. I think, um, if you can say, 
and I see this a lot with, with singers and you, you probably sing it too. You know, we'll be like, they'll, they'll walk into the room and we'll be like, you know, chit chatting and whatever. And then we get ready to start singing and it's like their whole body goes rigid and they like set, you know, and like, okay, now I'm ready to sing. Like, no, you were ready to sing five minutes ago when you were walking around and, and relaxed and stuff. Um, and so I would say it is right if you can walk around the room and gesture and, you know, do all this stuff without having to change your technique. <laughs> if you're just able to be loose and relaxed and still get a good resonant sound. Um, um, most of the time, I, don't, I'm, I, I say most of the time um, because there's always exceptions to everything. Everybody is a little bit different. Oh, of course. You know, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll be, able, that's just the anatomy. You know, our bones are shaped a little bit different, you know, all you know, our teeth are in different places, you know, whatever. You're right. And anyone that assumes that there's an ans absolute answer to anything needs to change their thought process. So yeah. hopefully our listeners are open and they understand that. But Yeah. And so I, you know, when I am singing well and, and things are working, I tend to have really good sympathetic resonance uh, feedback. You know, I get good buzzing in my face, but other people's don't, other people don't, um, you know, and that's just uh, a part of our thing. So you get to learn your own body. This is also, you know, it's not just singing exploration. It's also body exploration and you get to learn when your body is giving you good feedback. And that's something that I, as a teacher, can't always tell you what it is going to feel like because our bodies are different. I can tell you how it feels for me and maybe that resonates with you. Pardon the pun. But, Literally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, you get to, I, I really love, you know, when I hear something that sounds great, you know, asking my students, okay, what, what did you feel? Can you describe what you felt when you, when you did that? And so they are creating their own language and their own kind of feedback process about that. But um, I, I would also say that, you know, when, when you're singing well, most of the time you're going to know it. You'll just kind of know, oh, oh, it's like, that felt good. <laughs> you know, it's like, and so, you know, find, find what feels good for you. Use the ears of your, your expert teacher or your recordings and, um, you know, and just trust the process and, and know that it's probably not going to happen overnight. It is an exploration. And so it takes time to, to learn and to explore and to, to get it consistent. Exploring is such a cool way to think about it. And I love the idea of just like, especially for those who may not have a voice teacher, it's so accessible to just walk around and mm -hmm. move a little bit and just sing and see how that feels. Mm -hmm. And not rely so much on your ears. Yeah, I rehearse all the time while I'm cleaning my kitchen. <laughs> You know, just just walking around, you know, cleaning things, moving things. If I can stand up, sit, you know, bend, um, you know, squat down, put things in the cabinets and, and still feel like I'm maintaining my technique, you know, plus my kitchen's pretty resonant, so it's fun. <laughs> just walking around doing things and not allowing my body to kind of be static in one place while I'm singing. That also helps to do it a cappella a lot, too, because um, you, then you don't get tied to a piano or to a recording finding a balance and finding what's natural to your voice and just being grateful and thankful that you have that voice mm -hmm. and not comparing. 
Exactly. Yes. I was getting ready to say that, you know, if you are trying to sing like, or sound like someone you hear on the radio or that you admire, you know, flattery is the best form of, of, uh, you know, a compliment they say, but you know, your voice is unique to you. You know, it is, uh, it has its own timbre and its own quality. And, um, you know, we need to hear your voice and not you trying to be someone else. Well, and we want to hear your voice. Yes, exactly. Like, so much so everything is like being remade now like they're na- making new mary poppins and everything mm-hmm. like why can't we have an original news story like why can't yeah. we have an original new voice we want to hear your voice like what if mm-hmm. you're the next Pavarotti or mariah carey or whoever like right you never know and you're yeah. not going to know if you're trying to imitate adele because mm-hmm. there's already an adele <laughs> your voice is worthy enough of being heard just because it's yours that's nice (laughs) so where can we find you and I yes I have a website drheathernelson.com and I'll um, work on some you know nerdy science stuff that's on there you know but also I'm gonna be uh, posting like a water challenge um, you know where we're you know trying to drink three glasses of water a day you know a glass of water with every meal you know just to kind of work on the hydration and I'll talk a little bit about what hydration does for the voice and stuff um I am on uh Twitter at vocologist that is my handle um Instagram Dr. Heather Nelson and uh Dr. Heather Nelson vocologist on Facebook awesome if you're looking for um, any sessions or whatever, I do offer online uh, lessons through Zoom. You know, you can contact me or if you have any questions, I've got contact information on my website. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Singer podcast. If you are loving this podcast, if you are loving this content, and you want to keep getting more amazing episodes just like this, I would absolutely love it if you could take one minute out of your really busy day and leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps with our rankings and it's going to allow other singers to be able to find us and join you in your journey to singing better, giving your best performances, and giving amazing auditions. I would so appreciate an awesome rating and review. We're going for five stars here. So thank you so much.